the old pilot's plane tails, the Grade 2 listed centrifuge. A recent BBC News programme caught my eye when I realised it involved our great friends at the Farnborough Aviation Sciences Trust Museum. It reminded me of the group of sadistic so-called doctors who populated the Institute of Aviation Medicine and tortured generations of unsuspecting and innocent RAF aircrew in machines such as the one the article featured, a centrifuge. This aforementioned device, which resembles a vast witch's ducking stool crossed with an Iron Maiden, first operated in 1955 but was decommissioned as recently as 2019 and has now received Grade 2 protection. To be listed by Historic England in this manner gives the centrifuge the status of a protected structure, which means that someone can't easily chuck it on the scrap heap, and for the next two years at least it will be put on display as part of an exhibition attached to the Fast Museum. There were, of course, parallel organisations in other countries which made similar groundbreaking strides in the subject of aviation physiology, primarily in France, Germany and the United States. The history of British military aviation medicine is centred around the Institute, although that august body was a relatively late arrival and individual services, namely the Army and the Navy, had their own medical organisations that weren't specifically aimed at pilots. The physiological problems that pilots might encounter in their line of work had been appreciated very early on, as early as 1794 when the French formed an aeronautical company of observation balloons used in the Austrian conflict. The Americans also operated balloons during the Civil War and the British Army in the Boer War. In 1878, the British had formed a balloon school, which was the same year that Paul Burt wrote his seminal monograph, Pression Barometrique, which brought about a greater understanding of the effects of altitude, particularly that of the partial pressure of oxygen with reduced barometric pressure. Wilbur Wright had published an article in Flight magazine entitled Aviation and Common Sense, which contained some colourful descriptions of ailments suffered by aviators, such as hemorrhaging from lips and fingernails and the loosening of leg bones in their sockets. He also recommended the use of laxatives before flight to excite the circulatory organs and that bleeding would relieve feelings of congestion and lividity. As you can probably imagine, however, it was the First World War that brought about any serious progress in the developing field of aviation medicine. Previously, there had never been any specific concern about the fitness of those who took to the air, but as accident rates grew, it was suggested that a medical board vetting be performed on prospective aircrew. Today, it is well known that various conditions, both chronic and acute, may seem innocuous on the ground, but can cause great distress 
when cold, hypoxic and at a reduced atmospheric pressure. Since every failed aviator cost the Royal Flying Corps £2,000, the work of this board soon became highly regarded, and it moved from its rather incongruous setting of the Cecil Hotel in the Strand to a proper headquarters. The prevailing attitude towards the qualities needed by a pilot were well illustrated by a paper published in the renowned medical journal The Lancet of September 1918. It described an aviator's character as possessing resolution, initiative, presence of mind, a sense of humour and sound judgment. They should also be alert, cheerful, optimistic, happy-go-lucky, a good fellow and frequently lacking in imagination, perhaps so they wouldn't dwell on the many ways that their chosen profession might kill them. Inevitably, good pilots were sportsmen, went to the theatre, danced, liked ragtime music and indulged in riotous behaviour at least a couple of times a month. The RAF Quarterly advocated horse riding, which developed an eye for the country, good communication and capable hands. When it came to selection, a more objective approach was obviously needed, since aircrew were now regularly flying in hostile conditions, altitudes of 20,000 feet without oxygen, temperatures of minus 20 degrees centigrade in open cockpits, where hypoxia and frostbite were constant companions. Pilots often flew without safety belts, parachutes or protective helmets. In addition, the psychological toll of operational flying was becoming self-evident. The dangers of hypoxia were already well documented as far back as 1875, Joseph Croc Spinelli, Theodore Civel, and Gaston Tissandia had flown a balloon to 28,200 feet, but during the ascent they all fell unconscious. Tissandia came around during the descent to find both his colleagues had died. The problem of oxygen starvation amongst aircrew had been recognised particularly for photographic reconnaissance flights when long periods were spent at altitude to avoid the enemy guns. The erratic behaviour of observers who became confused and mishandled their cameras or photographed the wrong places were common. Pilots might fail to engage the enemy and wave cheerily at them instead. Landings after such flights were often poorly performed and the crews unsteady on their feet, complaining of long-lasting and severe headaches. Aircrew selection now included attention to a low heart rate, particularly when under stress, slow deep respiration and large lung capacity, all of which indicated good tolerance to low oxygen levels. The cure, of course, was to provide oxygen, but the equipment was crude. Mask designs were poor, uncomfortable and inefficient, and sometimes just consisted of a pipe to clamp between the teeth. They were constant flow systems that wasted much of the oxygen. 
It was the Germans who were probably the most advanced in providing on-demand oxygen equipment, but even their efficiency failed to overcome the problems of moist exhaled air, freezing valves and the dilution of the gas that inevitably occurred in the freezing blasts of air from an open cockpit that unsealed the mask. Staying warm was also a big problem, cured in some extent by the invention of the Sidcot suit by a then young naval aviator, Sidney Cotton, which I've talked about before. Helmets came about initially through the need to keep the head warm and were generally leather caps, but these left the face exposed and prone to frostbite. When advances in radio equipment required these caps to hold earphones and anchor oxygen masks, they became more efficiently designed and eventually in 1917 the RAF produced the first Mark I flying helmet. In the same year, Oliver Sutton designed a superior restraint system that could hold the crew in place even when inverted. Disorientation was recognised as a deadly threat to pilots, particularly when operating without visual references, which is why cavalry officers were often selected to be trained as they usually had good balance and stability. Balance tests were performed, uh, not dissimilar to the sobriety test still used today to assess innate spatial orientation. It was still common for crews to damage their ears through pressure changes and techniques to unblock the eustachian tube were not taught or practised. Between the wars, advances in aircraft design led to new physiological problems being recognised. The effects of G on the body had been noted during the First World War during combat, but in the 20s and 30s, the great air races, with their tight turns being performed around pylons, ensured that the problem became more widely known. The consequences of increased G can be serious. Blood tends to pool in the lower limbs, decreasing blood pressure to the head. This is first noticed in the eyes, which, because of interocular pressure opposing blood flow, results in a dimming and then complete loss of vision. Consciousness is retained, but only for a short while, after which the brain shuts down, and if the G remains too high death will follow. It was the RAF's involvement in the Schneider air races that became the catalyst for training a team of pilots to resist the high-G environment. Muscle tensing was the simplest technique that improved resistance to around 4.5G, but the first suggested mechanical assistance was proposed to be an inflating belt that was filled by a scoop which opened into the slipstream under G via a bob weight. However, the high-speed flight team preferred to fly a wider turn, which reduced the G and retained performance. Other ideas surfaced, like flying in a prone position, breathing 100% oxygen and the wearing of tight belts, but interest in the problem waned. The onset of World War II enlivened the RAF's attitude to aviation medicine, particularly when it was realised how far behind Germany Britain was. 
a Flying Personnel Research Committee of experts was formed who assembled to tackle some of the most pressing issues, such as providing reliable oxygen to aircrew and protection against high G. Other areas of urgent interest were also identified, such as reducing cockpit noise, improving visual standards and the causes of fatigue. Labs were set up at the Royal Aircraft Establishment, Farnborough, which consisted of an unused corrugated iron lean-to shed, and their work started. This was the birthplace of what would become the Institute of Aviation Medicine. Within a matter of weeks, they were working on the effects of high altitude on the human body by borrowing and encouraging volunteers to clamber into the instrument department's noisy and cramped decompression chamber. In the months it took to assemble more permanent buildings and acquire their own equipment, they did important work establishing the mechanism that caused decompression sickness, evaluating oxygen systems and discovering factors that might be used to select those not prone to the bends, to give it the common name. Those who worked there did not remain secluded boffins, but were often found on operational missions, studying the problems of night vision, dazzle, fatigue, air sickness hypoxia and cold. They even flew with men suspected of low moral fibre to assess them and to bolster morale. They even flew with the Army Air Corps' 7th Bomber Group. They flew in India and the Far East. One particularly adventurous doctor turned guinea pig to trial an RAF system of picking up agents from enemy territory. He was attached to a harness from which a cable was suspended in the air. A low-flying aircraft used a hook to snatch the cable and drag the subject instantaneously into the air. The acceleration and shock left the volunteer pale and shaken, but amazingly willing and eager to repeat the experience. It was in the early stages of the war that the Air Ministry encouraged research into the effects of acceleration on the body. After all, a pilot who could withstand more G than his enemy would have a distinct advantage in a dogfight. The Americans had a centrifuge, and it had been used by the father of American aviation medicine, Harold Armstrong, to conduct his classic study on the effects of prolonged acceleration on the human body. The Germans also had one, but it would be another ten years before money was made available for the British to build their own. The alternative was to use actual aircraft, which was arguably where the tests would finally end up anyway. Wartime fighters could pull between plus 10 to plus 12 and minus 5G and the motley collection of cast-off aircraft that the doctors at Farnborough could lay their hands on were not reliable enough to risk frequent experimentation at those levels. In the end, they used a gladiator fitted with a camera and accelerometer to measure the G being pulled. At plus 6G, a pilot weighed more than half a tonne. Limb movements were near impossible. The face became haggard. 
The trunk shrank by two inches. Vision greyed and then blacked out, but other senses remained. Upon recovery, there was often spatial disorientation, with a feeling of forward tumbling, extreme dizziness, nausea and profuse sweating. They worked at measuring their own G-thresholds, the value at which complete blackout occurred, and then experimented at what might affect it. This involved spiral dives from 20,000 feet, which allowed 30 to 40 seconds of constant high G. The subject's threshold improved with practice, but then stabilised, except when affected by something like a cold or other illness, or perhaps a hangover. It was surprising how detailed the observations were. Even without a centrifuge, it was established that the blackout occurred not because available light wasn't bright enough, or that the light-sensitive pigment in the eye lost sensitivity, but because of the pressure effects on the nerves leading from the eye to the vision centres of the brain. Much of this work was done by a young flying officer, Stuart, who, flown by experienced test pilots, was taken to a blackout over 200 times, which usually resulted in overwhelming feelings of lethargy, fatigue, impaired memory, headaches, sleep impairment, double vision, and inability to concentrate. This inevitably resulted in depression and antisocial feelings. His tenacity over a two-year program resulted in him being awarded the Air Force Cross for his work. It wasn't until 1955 that the Institute acquired their own British-built man-carrying centrifuge at Farnborough, believed now to be the oldest example in the world of a centrifuge that has largely remained unmodified since it was installed. As was common with most centrifuges of its era, it could deliver a level of G appropriate for modern aircraft, but in its later life it couldn't replicate the rate at which this G could be applied. As such, after 65 years of vomit-inducing torture, it was stood down from duty. During its operational use, however, it made possible the investigations that led to the development of anti-G trousers and pressure breathing for G protection. Although not widely recognised, it was the United Kingdom who first invented pressure breathing for G protection with all the initial work carried out on the Farnborough centrifuge. Combined with anti-G trousers, PBG, is a system that equips the Typhoon fighter and enables the pilots to fly the aircraft to the limits of human endurance. The Farnborough centrifuge also enabled study of the adverse effects of G on the human body, gave high G training for UK fasture aircrew, was used for the selection and training of candidates for space exploration, and furthered vital research into the physiological effects of G on the human body, often done in collaboration with the United States of America.
Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that at AirlinePilotGuy.com. Plane Tales is also a standalone podcast, so if you'd like to help us out, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks, and many thanks for listening.